0: Uh, Thank you for letting me have the opportunity to be here tonight. Um, This is a privilege beyond um, comparison, really. I love the opportunity to talk about my God and to enjoy time with His people, and um, I'd love to pray as we start tonight. Heavenly Father, tonight is not inconsequential in eternity. Tonight is not merely another hour in our day, but tonight we have an opportunity to hear from your word, to reflect on your work, and to worship our God. So Lord, I know as well as anyone in this room how times like this can can be habit. And, God, we don't want to approach you in habit. Instead, Lord, we ask that you would do something that is supernatural tonight, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would give us eyes to see your greatness. That, Lord, is worship. May we, as we um, come before your word tonight, May we be humble, and may we be eager to learn more of you, to sit at your feet, and to bask in the greatness of our King. We beg this in Jesus' name, amen. I was given the the title uh, for tonight's text, part of this series that you've been doing. I guess you've done the gospel. And um, neighboring the gospel and masculinity, the gospel and freedom, the gospel and—am I missing some? Does anybody know? These are extra points. Fear, you get a Reese cup afterwards. See Matthew Spivey, he'll give you a Reese cup. Any others? Fear, uh, gospel, and what? Anxiety. You get cookies afterwards. Something like that. Uh, anyway, so I've been given this. We're doing this series, or you're doing this series on the gospel, and and I was given the title to do the gospel and living missionally. And I am thankful. The gospel and living missionally. And what I wanted to do first is just pull back. I think, especially if you were raised in the church, the word gospel has a lot of baggage to it. Sometimes it's uh, helpful. Sometimes it's not so helpful. In fact, maybe even if you've been a long time in crew, sometimes the gospel can be narrowed down or truncated down to what you might tell someone as a plane is crashing, right? What do they have to hear from me in order that they, must, they can be saved, right? And so you've, 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 maybe you have 1 Corinthians 15 in your mind or you have the Romans Road in your mind or maybe you've got a track and you just you know, throw that out and here's the gospel. And that's not that that's not the gospel, But it's not all of the gospel. In fact, I would argue tonight that the gospel is a story. The gospel is an entirety of what God has endeavored to do with his creation. Uh, My kids, three of my kids, three of my kids are boys, and all three of them play baseball. And there is this crazy new app that is out or program that is out called Game Changer. And what it enables you to do is keep track of stats on something digitally, on your phone, your iPad, or whatever. But what's crazy about it, it's not that. That seems, okay, that's... But what it does is after you enter all this stuff in and the game ends and you hit, you know, close, it takes the game. All you've entered is stats. This kid hit a double. This kid hit a single. This kid did this. He's wondering It's just stats. And artificial intelligence makes a story. And it's freaky. I'm, not, I'm telling you, it is, it is freaky. You pick it up and it says something like... The sharks annihilate the hurricanes with a late-game surge off the wicked bat of you know, Tyron and the wheels of Lucas. And you're like, what? How did, the, how did the, the iPad just do that? And it's these fancy logarithms, and they take a bunch of adverbs and adjectives, and they have them all stacked in. It's fascinating. Friends, that's artificial intelligence. The gospel is the greatest story ever told because it was written by the author of all intelligence. This is supernatural intelligence. This is not artificial intelligence. This is supernatural intelligence. The greatest story ever told. So what I thought I would do on the first part, because really if you want to break this down and what is the gospel and living mystically, you're really looking at what has God done or what is God doing and what am I to do? It's really two sections, two segments. So in the first part tonight, I want to look at the gospel, what has God done or what is God doing? In that, I want to walk through the Bible, the whole Bible. Are you ready? I hope you packed some snacks, maybe a sun drop or something like that. We're going to roll through the whole Bible, but here's how I want to do it. Uh, and, and you can look at as you're studying the Bible, you can find lots of themes in the Bible. But there are three threads that I want to draw your attention to tonight. And just notice these three threads as they walk through the Bible as God is laying out this beautiful, beautiful story of the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't happen, what we know of, um, sort of those words or the tract, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. These three threads there's a promise, there's a problem. And there's a provision, and it's all woven from beginning to end. There's a promise when you think about this. The promise begins right in the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 3.15, we find out that Adam and Eve, that evil has entered the world, and Adam and Eve had chosen to believe that God is not good. And so Jenny, wherever she went to, she made a great point. I can't see her because of the Shekinah glory kind of in my face. Oh, right there. Jenny Jenny made this great point that we tend to think of sins in these different levels, right? We tend to think of something like disrespect or pride as somehow a lesser sin than mass murder or something like that. When in reality, what we're confronted with on the very first pages of the Bible is that sin at its core is nothing but disbelieving that God is good. Every single sin falls back to that, and that is heinous. If God is perfectly good, and we believe he's not, that sin is damning and horrible. At the very beginning, we find out that Adam and Eve choose to believe the lie that God is not good. We joke about this in our church, and we have to sort of joke about it. We understand the, the gravity of it, but look at the picture. Here's the sales pitch. God says, here's a garden. Satan says, here's a tree. And mankind says, I'll take the tree over the garden, Anyway, so this, fall, this, this plunges mankind into what is a fall, but we don't even get off of the page of man's fall before we have the mercy of God in a promise. And he promises it's going to be a seed. And he promises it's going to be a seed, and it's going to come through Eve, it's going to come through this line, and then as we move through the Scriptures, we just see this picture of the seed filling out more and more. In fact, it, it fills out more and more by becoming more and more narrowed down who this seed's going to be. So you don't get very long. You go through a few generations just to tease us. Is it going to be the very next person, right? Eve has a child, so is it Cain and Abel right off the bat? We go, no, that wasn't it. And so the seed starts to move down, but all of a sudden God chooses a people, and he says this people in Abraham. In Genesis 12, he says the seed is going to come from this people. And then it, the group starts to get smaller and smaller, and it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah. It's going to come from this line. And now in Judah, we're also told it's also going to be a king. And so we know it's going to be a king from the line of Judah. And then we found out it's going to be from the line of David. And there's this anticipation all the way through the Old Testament of a promise. A seed, a promised seed that would come and fix all that is broken. And that thread is woven so beautifully from every page in the Jewish scriptures. Well, There's another thread that's woven so tightly with this promise, and that's a problem. We see on those first pages of Scripture, right, Adam and Eve, the problem is introduced as evil comes into the world, and Adam and Eve choose to believe the evil lie that God's not good. Well, this sort of thread just continues all the way through the Old Testament. It's not just Adam and Eve. In their, in their sin, they have now condemned all of mankind. Romans talks about that. In, in one man, in Adam, there was sin was introduced, and all mankind felt the repercussions of it. And so now all mankind is sinful. And the Old Testament just comes back at this and back at this. And you you keep thinking, oh, we've got this thing figured out. So God comes along with Noah and he says, I'm going to wipe out everybody except Noah because Noah's a righteous man. And we think, aha, this is it. Maybe he's even the seed, but everything's been fixed. Noah's righteous. Noah gets off the boat. Noah just has his family. It's like a family vacation off the boat. And they plunge into depravity again. And we're, ah, well it wasn't Noah, didn't fix it, problem still exists. Then God takes a magnifying glass and he takes a person's depravity that comes in this line and he puts it on a people. This people Israel that he chose in that part of the promise, he now puts Israel on display and he blesses Israel and Israel has and he, and he warns Israel and he gives them guidelines and he does all this stuff and what do we find, a story after story after story of Israel's problems. They're not fixed. They're broken. And over and over and over again, God sets them up for success, and they fail. God sets them up for success. He saves them. He redeems them. He he restores them, and they fail him, and they fail him, and they fail him. So you're, you're picking up. You've got this theme of a promise, but now you have this dissonance of this theme of a problem. And intertwined with the promise and the problem, it's just this tension that's existing all the way through. You get to the kings of Israel Think because that's what they think. Oh, our problem is we're ne- we don't have a king like everybody else. You know, Israel's just, actually, we never really grow out of that weird stage of being a middle schooler where we want to be like everybody else. You know, I talked about being in the fourth grade. Of course that was traumatic to you. Everybody, by the time we're in the fourth grade, we want to be like everybody else. Israel, they're a nation called out by God, and their problem is what? Everybody else has a king. We don't have a king. God's going, I'm a I'm the creator of the universe. I'm your king. And they go, no, no, we, we'd rather have one that dies. One that steals all the stuff from us, takes us a lot of taxes, and puts our kids into slavery. That's what we want. God says, that's what you want. You want somebody that's gonna come along, take all your money, and put your sons into the war, and then make you slaves. That's what you want. Yeah, that's what we want, because that's what everybody else has. All right, so God gives them a king. And every time there's this tease, right, okay, it's going to be fixed. This problem is going to be fixed. And you have a king like David who's the man after God's own heart. We've got this right. And then what does David put on the front page of the news? We have blatant adultery. And then was it just a slip up? No. He goes ahead and he just murders the guy to cover it up. And it's just a year and a half of terrible wickedness. David's not the guy. And then if you've ever done a study of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, it's really depressing. Shoot, the kings of Israel, the northern tribe, they don't have any good kings, and there's only a handful of somewhat mediocre kings in Judah. By the time you get to the Old Testament, one thing you have for sure is you know this: we don't have a fix to the problem yet. There's a promise and there's a problem, and both are still sitting there in tension. And then the third strand comes in. There's a provision. And again, folks, this is not last minute. This is not the New Testament. This is not. The provision begins in Genesis 3. All three of these threads kick in right from the very first pages of Scripture. Adam and Eve have rejected the goodness of their God. And God has said, if you, if you do that, death is what you deserve. And so God comes in and he says, death is what you deserve. And immediately they should have died. But God in his justice and mercy says this, you will die, but I'm going to delay your death by giving you a provision. And I want you to let this start to th- sink in because friends, this is the most glorious story ever told. So it, the, the more we actually understand it as it was rightly told, it will blow our minds. So in Genesis 3, God says this, to keep you from dying, I'm gonna provide a substitute and an animal dies. And An animal dies, why? Because now in their sin, they're too shameful to be in front of God Shoot, they're too shameful to be in front of one another. And so this depiction, right, nakedness sort of demonstrates. It's an illustration of shame now. and So God in his mercy says, I'm going to provide one to die and cover you and cover your shame. Oh, and that provision just starts, thread starts to just weave. You get through Genesis, you get to Genesis 21, and there's this incredible picture that God is going to provide a substitute. Remember Abraham and Isaac? Abraham is called to do this strange thing by God to sacrifice his own son. And in his obedience, God says, you know what? I'm going to provide a substitute for all who follow me in faith. And at this point, if you know what's coming next, the hair on the back of your neck starts to stand up. Are you kidding me? Only gets bigger. So now we move. Remember, he he was working with individuals and individuals. Now we're at Abraham. Now it becomes a people. So what does God do? I'm going to put the provision on a national display. And so he sets up a sacrificial system to to remind the people, you have a problem, you have a sinful problem that means death. And so that you see this over and over again, there's going to be a sacrificial system for you to have your sins covered. Now we know from text after text that the blood of bulls and goats does not cover the sins of man, ultimately. It was just a depiction. It was an illustration so that every year these people knew we have to have someone die because we should die. So every year they would take a lamb into their home, a spotless, perfect, all that's cute lamb, right? Everything you think about, a little cuddly lamb, that's what it was, right? Precious moments. We talk about this in our church. Precious moments got one thing right, the lamb. They picture this cute little lamb. They've got one thing terribly wrong, hallmark of precious moments, what an angel looks like. They make an angel look like a little lamb. Anyway, that's for another story, another sermon. If an angel walked through this door, we would all wet our pants and run, okay? Just keep that sort of in the back of your mind. But a lamb, that's what they brought into their house so that everyone would be tender and brokenhearted. And the one thing you know about the lamb is it did not deserve to die. Year after year after year, family after family after family was confronted with the fact somebody's dying in my place. It was all more elaborate than that. They would even put their hands on a scapegoat and put the scapegoat outside the city and it would die. There was all kinds of outward demonstration to show these people there is a provision for you. And so you have these three threads that are working through the Old Testament, that there is a promise of a seed to fix it. There is a problem of man that hasn't been fixed and that there is a provision that is coming. Friends, you get to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 says, God is going to send his servant to be the sacrifice for sins. This is all the backdrop before the New Testament begins. And then Jesus walks on the scene. Pick up your Bibles tonight and start reading through the gospel with that being the backdrop. So Matthew starts his account by saying, hey, we've got this guy coming, and he's coming from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Judah. He's a king. Luke starts his gospel by saying he comes all the way from Adam, right? The first problem. Jesus is of that line. And then John in chapter 1 has John the Baptist walk in front of the people and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. That is the gospel. This Jesus who now lives on earth for three years, I mean for 33 years to demonstrate his blamelessness. So that if we pull back from our perspective, if there was anything we could say about Jesus is he does not deserve to what? To die. He does not deserve to die. And yet what does he do? He dies. Now make no mistake about it. You could say, well, he was murdered. And and yes, he was murdered. But Jesus makes it all too clear in John chapter 10 that no one takes his life from him, that he lays it down on his own accord. So here you have the mixture of the lamb and the high priest together in one person who has the authority to lay down his life. And then gloriously, he says, he has the authority to do what? To take it up again. So here's the beauty. The lamb that was slain is the risen Lord. So not only did he live a life of perfection that I would never be able to live so that he could be that replacement for my righteousness, he died a sinful death that I don't have to take. Terribly taking the full wrath of God on his shoulders. All the wrath that was due me for all eternity, paid in full in Christ. He's died. He's dead, he's buried, and now he raises from the grave to prove, hey, I wasn't just a man, but I was God. I am God. Friends, that, that is the gospel. That is what God is doing. So then the question comes what does it mean to live missionally? Here's the beautiful part God has always chosen to do his work through his people. Back up from the all the way back before the fall, God set out with a plan, put Adam and Eve on the earth. He told them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. This is God, who in one verse, almost as an afterthought, says, you read in Genesis 1, oh, and he created all the stars also. So so let me get this straight, God. In an afterthought, you know, as you're kind of picking your teeth with your toothpick after barbecue, you're like, oh, and he creates the stars also. You're telling me instead of creating the earth full of mankind, you take Adam and Eve and you tell them, no, you fill the earth. Why? Because God works through his people. God works through his people. So when you come to Israel, he has a chosen people. Why did he pick those people? Now Israel got it wrong. Most of Israel always got it wrong. They thought it was like middle school, and they had just gotten chosen first for the kickball team. And so they walked around like peacocks. God chose us. He didn't choose you. Now God had told them over and over again, Israel, I actually picked you because you are the least of all people. I picked you because you've got no kickball skills. You're three feet tall. You're slow as molasses. You can't see. And I picked you. And they're walking around like, yeah, God picked me. But why did God pick Israel if they weren't the people that you would pick? The Bible makes it perfectly clear. God picked Israel so that Israel would make God known. We're walking through Joshua and at our church, and if you've ever walked through the conquests that God does with his people in Israel, and you think, these are bizarre. They're bizarre because God always sets, he always stacks the deck against him, so it's clearly his work. So he picked a terrible people to show that if they do anything well, if they do anything right, if there's any success, no one can point to them They can only point to their God. God has always operated through his people, his broken, insufficient people, so that he gets the glory. God works through his people. I want to read for you two texts in the Psalms. So Israel walked around like peacocks. In fact, they started to get to the point where they didn't even, it wasn't that they didn't. Promote God to the to the world. In Genesis 12, God chose Abraham and he said to him, I will make you a blessing to the nations. You catch that? I, I didn't pull you out of the nations to make you better or different. I made you so you would be a blessing to the nations. Then he comes along. In Isaiah 96, I mean, excuse me, in Psalm 96, he says this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. Flip back a couple pages into Psalm 67, and you have these words. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Make his face to shine upon us. This was a famous um, prayer that the, the priests would pray, uh, the Aaronic priests would pray over the people. Now listen, catch this. Here's an important word. That, or so that, your way may be known on the earth and your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. Let the people, excuse me, let the nations Be glad and sing for joy. God works through his people so that the earth will be full of people who are glad in their God. So when Christ spends his last few days on the earth with his disciples, he looks at them and he tells them, Go and declare my glory among the nations. Now he uses different terminology that we're a little bit more familiar with in New Testament times and we, see, we hear him say, go and make disciples of all nations. Right? Go and tell everybody all about me so that people can be glad in their God. God always uses his people. And our job That we get to be a part of, this incredible story that we get to be a part of, is to tell other people how they can be glad. This is what's fascinating to me. We so many times put sort of an end to the gospel. And don't get me wrong, it is a good message to sell someone you can be freed from the wrath of God. Okay? It is a wonderful message to be able to tell someone, hey, You deserve to die and and stay separated from God for all eternity. You deserve his wrath and so do I. It is a wonderful message to say, hey, there's a pardon there. God has provided salvation so that that doesn't have to happen to you. But that's not the end of the gospel. God doesn't save us so that we will just be saved. He saves us so that we will be a testimony to the world in our speech and in our life that God is good. Friends, we have a job of gladness in our own hearts and in our message to the world. Let the nations be glad. It doesn't just say let the nations be saved. Let the nations be glad. And you ask, how do we do that? Two ways, two ways that Israel was to do it, two ways that we're to do it. Our life and our speech. How we live in front of the nations and what we say to the nations. How we live in front of the nations needs to indicate that God truly is good. We see that demonstrated. That's the choice that Adam and Eve made. Adam and Eve had a choice to either trust that God is good and all that comes with that. So if God says you don't wear jeans today, you don't wear jeans today. Why? Because you think, oh, that's a good idea, God, because it's going to be kind of warm today. No, you, you don't even, that's not even something you consider. You just trust God is good, and if he tells me don't wear jeans today, I don't wear jeans today. See, if my kids <laughs> thought that I was perpetually good, I would never have those conversations in my house, would I? And I'll say things like, hey, you, you She probably put a sweatshirt on today, and I get feedback. Well, I don't know, I don't know. Because they don't believe I'm perpetually good, and that's okay because I'm not. Thankfully, y'all didn't amen. It's true, but y'all didn't amen. I'm glad for that. Appreciate it. That was kind of you. Right? That's okay. I want to be good for my kids, but I know that I'm not. They know I'm a sinner just like them. But if I was a perfect father, they would have no reason not to trust me. See, friends, so we're to live as though God is good in everything. And when we name Christ and then we live as if he's good. Do you know that's really what's going on in the commandment that God gave to the Israelites when he said don't take the Lord's name in vain? That's a, we tend to think about that. You hit your thumb with a hammer and your grandma says you shouldn't say that word or maybe you say it after a test score you get back and your friend and crew is like, hey, you really shouldn't talk like that. And I'm, I'm with them. That's, that's not how you should talk. It's not helpful for us with the God of all creation to talk of him in a flippant way. But that is not what that commandment meant. That commandment meant a whole lot more than that. It meant don't you dare claim to be a follower of the king and then live like he's not the king. Don't take his name in vain. Don't put his uniform on and then live like he's not who he claims to be. Don't champion his name and then not do what he says. We have the same command in the New Testament, don't we? We're to be holy because he's holy. If we've claimed... Yes, you are Lord, and you are good, and everything you say for me to do is good, then I trust it, and I'm going to do it. We're to live in such a way that it says to the world, our God is good, and we find gladness in him. And then secondly, we're told to tell the world. We're told to tell the world about this sweet, beautiful plan This glorious truth that we can be reconciled to our God and we can live in gladness, perpetual gladness from now throughout all eternity. Now catch that. Gladness does not mean you will live in perpetual wealth or perpetual, you name whatever, you know, perpetual sweet tea or perpetual relational bliss or whatever, that's not what's promised ever. And people who've had all those things for all of life have looked back and said, yeah, you don't find gladness in that anyway. But we don't hear it, do we? We don't hear that. We don't hear, we don't hear Henry Ford's words, I was happier when I was a mechanic. We don't hear the words of celebrities when they get to the end of their life and say, this fame, fortune, this was terrible. We don't hear that. God is telling us gladness is not found in our circumstances, but gladness is found in God. True unadulterated, undisappointing gladness is found in our God. And that's the message that we get to carry. But here's the kicker. We're to tell people. Romans chapter 10 says that we're to do this, right? Romans chapter 10 has in it that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How are people going to find out about this great message of salvation and the greatness of our God? In fact, it's framed in this way, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching how they preach unless they are sent? Right? We're to proclaim him. We're to live and we're to proclaim him. That's how. Now here's the question. Where? Because whenever you talk missionally and missions, the question comes up, where? And then all of a sudden, all kinds of weird things go in our hearts. And we can go in one direction and we can say, Lord, you tell me where to go and I'm going to go. And if you tell me to go somewhere hard, I'm going to go somewhere hard and I'm going to put it on my sleeve. I went somewhere hard. You stayed in Wilmington, which is a vacation town, and I went to Cambodia. Look at me. Or we can say, Lord, I will go anywhere in Wilmington with the gospel. You just tell me where. Just about anywhere in Wilmington with the gospel. I'll go here. I'll go on the campus or certain sections, right? We start to limit. God, will you tell me where you want me to go? Where should you go? Matthew 28 has this interesting phrase that has been (laughs) hijacked, I think, by the church in both directions. uh, When it says, when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples, there have been some um, branches of Christianity that have looked at that and said, go means that you have to leave where you are and go. Right, you got to leave town. Go. Uh, and, and they elaborate, oh, you've got to go to be faithful to the mission. Uh, and that's not true. In fact, grammatically, it's probably more fair to translate that, as you are going, make disciples. But before you think, okay, well, that's just, that just signs off that I don't need to go anywhere, let me ask you this question. Where would God have you go? There's no hierarchy because there's no hierarchy in you or me, right? Do you realize that? There's no badge for me for being a preacher. If you're going to go and change oil for the glory of God, praise God for that. You can worship God as a mechanic as well as you can worship God as a preacher. But have you asked God where and how do you want me to do this? Because, friends, what I'm trying to tell you is the heartbeat, the purpose for your life is to let the nations be glad in their God. That is why we exist. So do you ask God, where do you want me to be a part of that? Where do you want me to take your gladness and your gospel and I'll go? And I would challenge you at this stage in your life, to at least look around and go, I've got different opportunities than somebody who's got four kids and a mortgage and say, Lord, should I use that mobility for something? Am Am I willing? Am I eager? It would be foolish of me to think I could tell you where you should go. But I do know this. God's design is that the nations would be glad. This town is part of the nations. Nigeria is part of the nations. Turkey is part of the nations. The Kiev is part of the nations. Ecuador is part of the nations. Do we recognize that our purpose is for the nations to be glad? Meaning my neighbor and the person in Nigeria And do we come before God and say, what would you have me do? How many times have you asked yourself, what should my major be? How many times have you wrestled with, what should I do as an occupation? Versus how many times have you sat down honestly before God and said, what would you have me do with your gospel?" Because friends, that's why we're left here. Now he may use your skills to take the gospel into the emergency room. And he may use your skills and your abilities and your relationships and your influence to take the gospel into elementary schools or fire departments or ball fields. But please understand, those are just means to an end. We are here. To let us and others be glad in their God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as I make that exhortation, I examine my own heart. God, if You are who You've shown Yourself to be in the Scriptures, if You are good and sovereign, if You are our Savior, You are worthy of our lives. God, I pray that You would use Your Word tonight. To sear in our hearts our purpose. Why You have made us. Why You've redeemed us. I pray tonight, Lord, if there's somebody here who doesn't know where they stand with You, that Your Word and Your truth and the beauty of Your Gospel would arrest them from the foolish and selfish pursuit and have them turn and fall in the mercies of Christ. God, may we not leave this room without the gladness of our God. And when we leave this room, may we see it as our mission to take the gladness, goodness, and gospel of our God to the world.